You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. It is a new year, and we have new music even. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm also Fran Chismar. Just kidding. <laughs> that was my fumble from, from last week. I'm Tom Knezic, uh, and welcome to episode Man. 38. Wow, I should have introduced myself as Tom. That would have, I, What a lost opportunity that was. Yeah. Man. But well, uh, we're excited to be back to our, our original format. Yeah. You know, it... it it's been a long time because of the holiday and how we record it. Um, I don't think we've done one with a meet our guest in probably a month. Yeah, I, I'd say it's been yeah. a good month. So yeah, probably even longer because it was before Christmas. Yeah, so but that's been over a month, right? Yeah, but it's nice to get back to this because it's been a while and. And it's going to flip around a little bit because before we do another rooted discussion, we're going to have another meet our guest and yes, another yeah. buzz. But. Um, you know, I feel like now that we have the three segments, the rooted discussions, meter guest, and the buzz, I feel like the podcast finally, it only took almost a year, is fully realized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It allows us to do everything we want to do. Yeah. While also providing, like, good content the entire time. And it gives people the opportunity to skip around. If you don't like the buzz, you don't have to listen to, to yeah. our chatter you know mm -hmm. if you're not a fan of that if you just like the guests you could just listen to the guests so yep. it kind of gives you the opportunity to, to flip around or listen to all of it and and get a pretty rounded, rounded yeah. and, and you mentioned rooted discussions with last episode the last buzz episode we were mm -hmm. talking about how well that was doing uh it's almost our number one episode now. it, it will be <laughs> so, by the end of the week in two yeah. weeks it it has skyrocketed to our number one episode yeah, so which is crazy yeah it, you so know duke farms which was has been on the number one spot since the very it was the second episode in march and it's been that number one episode since it aired yes so, for almost a full year yeah it's yeah. kind of it's kind of crazy that the rooted discussions kind of got that much steam and picked up that quickly so we're really thankful and and we see it carrying through to the mm -hmm. last buzz and hopefully it carries through with this one as well so um yeah. you know but it's it, it's a, it's a brand new year. We have all new music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, new theme music for Rude Discussions, which you guys will hear in about a month from now. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and new theme music for this episode as well. Yeah, I want to give a huge thank you to Egocentric Plastic Men out of Philadelphia for lending their song Can't uh, for our new theme music. I was actually – I own this song beforehand, mm -hmm. and I've actually seen them live. So I was really thrilled that they offered this song uh, to us. So make sure – uh, you check out Egocentric Plastic Men wherever you stream your music and go see them live. They're a great live band. Once shows start back up mm -hmm. again, they play pretty regularly in the in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, the little clip you played for me, I thought really fit the identity of this episode. I do so. too. They each kind of have their own little identity, mm -hmm. and I I like that. From this point forward, they'll all stand alone. So, yeah. so. And with that, we have a, a very special guest today, someone oh, that really needs no introduction to us. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm sure he's going to have an introduction for himself. <laughs> so, why don't we bring him into the room and let's do it and see uh, see how things start? Awesome. Emil, you're here. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> nice to see you guys. Very good to yeah. see you as well. So, Emil, I was saying that 
we, well, we know you pretty well, so you, we don't need an introduction from you, but we want you to introduce yourself to our listeners since, and I'm sure probably quite a few of them know you as well, but for those of you outside the area, uh, I want Emil to tell you who he is and why he's so important to us. Yes. Sure. Uh, so my name's Emil DeVito, uh, manager of science and stewardship at New Jersey Conservation uh, Foundation since 1989. So that's a long time. Wow. Going on my uh, 31st year, I guess. Well, 31. I sort of lost track of time with 2020 and COVID, but I guess it's 31 full years. So I guess I'm in my 32nd year. Wow. Um, you know, I go all over the state that, uh, doing both advocacy work and stewardship work and, uh, you know, just a whole variety of things. Uh, got my PhD in ecology at University of Wisconsin, but I my, my thesis was regarding bird communities and plant communities in the Pine Barrens. So I've been around for a long time. Are you originally from New Jersey? Yes. Okay. I, uh, have lived all my life in South Plainfield, except in Middlesex County, except when uh, I was at graduate school in Wisconsin. Wow. And I went to undergraduate school at Rutgers. Wow. And no no plans on leaving South Plainfield? Uh, where am I going to go? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, like, that's a long time to, to, to be at one place, but I was thinking that's the same year I started in the nursery industry, mm-hmm. 19, 19, it was February 16th, 1989. I, I started so it's kind of crazy it's been a long journey things have changed right. uh, yeah well um, things haven't changed so much in the conservation world I mean it's just you know a constant struggle to save land mm-hmm. manage land deal with problems advocate for better policies I mean it's really you know, you can win a battle a hundred times in a row, but if you lose it the one hundred and first time, you lost every one. So <laughs> things haven't really changed. And and we could touch a little bit on policy a little bit. I, mm-hmm. I you know, for our listeners, we we said the last episode that our next rooted discussion is going to be the government's role in restoration, and you're actually going to be one of our guests uh, on that one. So I don't want to delve too deep into it. I'd like to save a lot of mm-hmm. it for that episode, sure. but but we can definitely touch on that as well. I I thought for our listeners that don't know the New Jersey Conservation Foundation. Um, if you could just tell them a little bit about the organization and their history. Sure. So um, the Conservation Foundation was started uh, in the late 1950s. It was called the Save the Great Swamp Committee. Okay. And uh, it was based on the battle to keep the New York and New Jersey Port Authority from building a jet port in the in the Great Swamp in, in Morris County. Wow. And it was started by Helen Fenske and a, a number of other local folks uh, in Morris County who uh, decided they were going to battle the Port Authority and they okay. were successful ultimately and uh, the result was the Great Swamp National Wildlife Refuge. All right. So once the Great Swamp Refuge uh, happened in the early 60s and in fact that was the you know the country's first wilderness area is in the Great Swamp National mm-hmm. Wildlife Refuge, first federal wilderness. Oh, wow. And because um, that's when the Wilderness Act was passed. Okay. So um, when you go to the Great Swamp, you know, one half of it is the 
observation area with boardwalks and all sorts of things and the other half is the unmanaged section just the swamp forest and the streams and their trails but it's you know it's a wilderness area there, okay. there are no uh, structures of any kind or anything like that it meets the definition of federal wilderness wow um, but anyway that's you know that's the great swamp refuge and then for a short time the New Jersey Conservation Foundation was called the North Jersey Conservation Foundation for a few years and then all of a sudden it looked like things were heating up in the battle to save the Pine Barrens and so the name changed to New Jersey Conservation mm -hmm. Foundation okay and um, of course that you know in the in the 60s and 70s there were the the big pushes to uh, get the Green Acres program running at the state level you know saving lots of parkland and also the Pinelands Preservation Act, which is probably, to me, the most important thing that's ever happened in New Jersey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of you know preserving a really, you know, intact, you... large piece of the environment. Um, and even so, that's still a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course, everything will always be a struggle. Nothing, yeah. nothing will ever <laughs> let up. You know? um, I mean, imagine the pressure that there's going to be on the Pine Barrens when sea level rise in 75 years wipes mm -hmm. out all the shore communities yeah. and all those people have to go somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, because it's inevitable. Sea level is going to go up three, four or five feet, and there's going to be many places that are going to be wiped off the map. It, it's so, going to change, yeah. You know, we won't see it, but it'll be, you know, there's going to be, you know, huge conservation battles and issues regarding a shortage of land. And that's mm -hmm. always going to be. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, then over the years, it was New Jersey Conservation Foundation never really kept land of their own for okay. the first roughly 30 years of their existence. They would help counties save land, help municipalities save land, help the state save land, occasionally own a piece of land for a short period of time and then sell it to counties, towns, the state. Okay. Many examples of parks that you've gone to all over New Jersey, we were in the chain of title at some point. Because um, uh, a, a lot of times we could move faster than a government agency could move. Gotcha. So in other words, a government would, a government agency would know that they wanted to save a piece of land, but you know, it takes time to come up with the, the bond acts, the, the, the budgets, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So the first 30 years, just like with the Great Swamp Refuge, we sort of, you know, acquired pieces of land and then uh, flipped them to government agencies and many gotcha. land trusts. And we still do that all over New Jersey. We still acquire lands and turn them over to government agencies. But about about 1990, we started holding on to pieces of land okay. and managing pieces of land of our own. And of course, now we have um, well over 20,000 acres of land that we own outright. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't realize it was that much. Well, the Franklin Parker Preserve is a big chunk. You okay. know, that's about 12,000. Yeah. And then we have another, oh, you know, five or 6,000 in the Pine Barrens scattered about in slightly smaller pieces than the Franklin Parker Preserve, Candy Ashman Preserve, Michael Huber Preserve, and a few others. And then, and then we have smaller holdings all over New Jersey. Some are more like greenways, like the Wicachioke Creek and, uh, in um, Hunterdon County, okay. you know, we have many hundreds of acres uh, along the entire length of the Wicachoke Creek, and we have, we now we have holdings, you know, in virtually every county in New Jersey, 
um, and we own a lot of um, forests, farmlands, wetlands, um, urban parks. Um, you know, we have a big project now at Gateway Park in Camden on Admiral Wilson Boulevard. Oh, okay. Um, we were very active in in uh, northeastern New Jersey in the 90s, identifying lands to be saved in the Arthur Kill watershed and in mm -hmm. and around the city of Newark. And many of those lands eventually all got preserved. Um, but again, those were assisting the governments. And and then we have an easement program, a conservation easement program, which I don't, uh, you know, we have a complete uh, separate set of people working on um, stewarding conservation easements. You know, those are on private lands. Yeah. And, you know, that's a big job. We have well over 100 conservation easements on farms and forests and uh, all sorts of uh, different types of land all around New Jersey. And and, you know, that's a lot of work too, making sure that the conservation easement, um, the conservation easements are followed by the landowners. Yeah. You know, it's very easy <laughs> for a landowner to make a mistake, you know, do something that the conservation easement doesn't allow because landowners change. You yeah. know, people, one, one landowner has a conservation easement, they sell their land, the new landowner doesn't understand makes a mistake, you know, so those, those can be problematic. So you have to constantly monitor those conservation easements and keep up a dialogue with the landowners to make sure that easements aren't, uh, that there yeah. no problems don't occur on the conservation easements. And, and that's a, that's those a... are generally not open to the public. Sometimes they might have an access trail or something mm -hmm. depending on, you know, how they, how they originated. Yeah. I, I was going to say that's a big change coming from a grassroots effort to save one area yeah. to, to encompassing 20,000 acres in New Jersey. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a huge change. Um, yeah, it's a huge change. Um, you know, we, we started out mostly as an advocacy group and, uh, an organization that would assist governments. Okay. And then the problem was, is that nobody knew who we were because, you know, we didn't have anything of our own. Mm -hmm. And, and so that, that was probably the thing that led us to deciding to keep a few places, try to have some premier uh, preserves of our own. For example, you know, um, we've been involved in some very famous places, Wells Mills Park in Ocean County, a mm -hmm. spectacular park, yeah. you know, was saved by us. We were involved in the negotiations for Cape May Meadows uh, Preserve near the near Cape May Point. Okay. Um, you know, all sorts of places like that. I could name 50 places where, you know, we were very heavily involved. Pyramid Mountain with Tripod Rock in Morris County. Um, you know, all sorts of spectacular places that you wouldn't have any idea that we had anything to do with them. How? And so at some point, you know, our our staff and trustees, our board of trustees decided, you know, we, we can't remain anonymous anymore. Yeah. And we need to start doing things that, you know, we keep our name on. Mm -hmm. The or How much of the land of that 20,000 acre acres would not be open to the public oh it's almost every single acre that we own in fee is open to the public it's, okay wow. all right yeah. wow that's wonderful yeah. that's wonderful. there might be a few tiny exceptions where you know they might be inaccessible or uh you know for one reason or another uh small portions of preserves mm -hmm. might be closed down from okay. time to time because of a rare species issue or something yeah but they're basically all open to the public wow that's awesome yeah. that's fantastic now like so twenty thousand acres and you mentioned how you have to constantly protect a lot of these these uh lands 
from just oncoming threats. So he, I think he yeah. said you could win a hundred times, but if you lose a hundred and first, it's all gone. That's got to be expensive. Just the cost well, of the land one in New Jersey, so everything's expensive. But well, I mean, we well, you know, there there's a there's an attitude that's creeping in that you hear from time to time that people say, oh, we preserved enough land, we can't take care of it. Why are mm -hmm. we preserving more? Yeah. We completely disagree with that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the race to to save land in New Jersey is, in, in fact, it's going to get even to be a more difficult race because of COVID. Yeah. We're mm -hmm. finding that, you know, uh, people don't necessarily want to live in the cities like they may, may have thought yeah. two to three years ago. And it's, uh, you know, going to be a much more of pressure on the housing market for new development. Yeah. Much of it is good. It's going to be on, you know, uh, redeveloping cities and making the cities more livable. But there's still going to be tremendous pressure mm. on the suburbs. So, and you know, and we we're seeing to... it. Uh, we're seeing it here in other ways because directly affiliated to COVID, people are stuck at home. You're ordering more things, whether it's food or, or just toiletries or anything yeah. from Amazon. And uh we're seeing here in columbus new jersey where we have a lot of open space so a lot of that open space is going to warehouses right and uh, I mean, and that's been over the lifestyle change over the last couple of years but i think it's getting accelerated through covid right the warehouse boom is incredible i mean yeah. it's just you know it's just incredible warehouses are popping up anywhere near any kind of major artery yeah mm -hmm. because we're real close to 295 and the turnpike right. it's it's going crazy mm -hmm. so it's, it's we, crazy. Right. we 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 definitely see it so it's uh, plus, we're seeing the property values skyrocketing yeah. around yeah. here as well. Right. So it's, um, and it's and it's really a shame because the warehouse belt, you know, because of where the turnpike is in 295, it's was it was some of our most productive farmland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, the best soil in New Jersey for growing crops is the intercoastal plain, and we're losing it so fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the farmland preservation program is having a hard time keeping up. Um, and and you know so. Again, this is not about ecological restoration, but one of the things we're working very hard on is 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 the siting of solar uh, solar utility scale solar development mm -hmm. because we need to switch to renewable energy. We're fighting pipelines, we're fighting gas pipelines all over the place, natural gas pipelines, yeah. and we're we're doing well in some of those battles. Yeah, mm -hmm. and we want to see solar, but some of the solar is being proposed in the worst places. You know, in the middle of agricultural retention, prime farmland. Yeah instead of on rooftops and in you know parking lots and in industrial areas so yeah i mean some of the some of the more inventive things that i've saw that i've liked were like the patco stations in southern new jersey that all the parking lots were covered with with solar panels mm -hmm. you know that's right and and you know there's there's a bill in the legislature in, in the legislature right now to remove some of the insurance problems for putting solar panels on top of warehouses one of the issues why solar panels are not being put on top of these giant warehouses is is having to do with having things on the roof and insurance uh yeah, gotcha yep. yeah yeah so that's an impediment that needs to be removed um because we can't you know we shouldn't be having solar panels compete with prime farmland that we're trying that the farmland mm -hmm. program is trying to save there's a there's a proposal right now in salem county for an 800 acre solar farm in the middle of all the preserved farmland yeah Wow. So, you know, those are the kinds of things we want solar, but we don't want it in the wrong place. We don't want to see forests covered over with solar panels. We don't want to see our best farms covered over with solar panels. Um, and at the same time, we want solar panels because we need to get off 
natural gas and onto renewables. Yeah. So it, yeah, it, it creates a whole different issue. choices. Yeah, it creates a whole different issue with wildlife and, and things like that. You know, it's uh, it, it's hard. Hopefully, the the right choices can be made there, or the policy can be changed for mm-hmm. that. Um, when Tom mentioned expenses, where does New Jersey Conservation Foundation get their funding for a lot of these uh, purchases? Is it membership? Um, I, um, I, I, so, I grants. Yeah. So, uh, most of the time, uh, conservation easements on farmland are through funding from the federal Farmland Ranch Land Protection Act. Okay. Um, most of the federal money for farmland preservation that flows to New Jersey, uh, mo- much of it, if not most of it, um, is funneled through New Jersey Conservation Foundation. I don't have the exact numbers on yeah. that because I don't do it. That's okay. another set of people yeah. at the foundation. Um, at, because the restrictions that come with some of the federal money um, are not always uh, looked upon favorably by yeah. some of the state and county agencies. So we end up working with the farmers who want to work with the federal money. Okay. And so we save a lot of farms with the federal money uh, over and above all of the uh, Garden State Preservation Trust money that preserves farms. We work on those projects too, um, but uh, sometimes those projects don't involve the federal money. Okay. But all of the farmland preservation funds come from the various sources of either federal or state or county or municipal open space dollars. And we just help. Um, you know, amass all those different funds to put the project together. And then usually the county or the, uh, you know, uh, state end up having those farmland conservation easements. And that's important. Um, you know, sometimes we keep them too. We do have a lot. We, like I okay. said, we have over 100 conservation easements. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we keep some of them and monitor, monitor them ourselves. Uh, uh, and then for the forest lands, again, Almost all the money to actually purchase land uh, comes from, um, you know, a variety of sources. It could be natural resource damage funds. It could be uh, federal land and water conservation funds. It could be state green acres funds. It could be municipal or county open space trust funds. So what we do is we, you know, uh, also foundations and grants from corporations, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. We, you know, we figure out a way to, you know, piece together the funding to save the various patches of land that we deem most important. Again, I don't hardly do any of that. Sometimes I get involved in some of that. I, I used to do more of that 20 years ago, but we have, you know, over 35 people on staff and many of them are involved with piecing together all these projects. We just closed on a huge preserve in the Sourland Mountains. Wow, of, that's awesome. Uh, you know, the Somerset and Hunterdon County border. Okay. Right. And uh, we're working also with the Sourlands Conservancy and Mercer County. Uh, we can talk about some of those stewardship things mm-hmm. in a minute when we get to some of those uh, ecological restoration issues. But basically, um, the, the funding that we get from private individuals and from, you know, individual donors and corporate donors, most of that goes to supporting the people who do all this work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the actual money that's needed to buy the land, you know, you're talking millions and millions of dollars. That that usually comes from, you know, a variety of 
uh, funding sources okay. that are, you know, sources that are dedicated to buying open space. I'm glad you brought up the Sourlands Conservancy because one of the things we were going to ask, you know, 20,000 acres is a lot of property to manage. Um, and and we were wondering how do you manage those preserves? Is it Are they actively managed or um, are they let just to be, be natural? For the most part, uh, they're, they're left in a natural state except where we do – you know ecological restorations okay mm-hmm. so you know for example at the franklin parker preserve you know we re- we restored about uh almost a thousand acres of of cranberry bogs mm-hmm. wow. that were abandoned in the early 2000s you know and we've we've restored them to natural wetlands you guys have been heavily involved in providing plants for all yeah. of that um mostly atlantic white cedar is what you know you have provided to us yeah um then we have, you know, smaller projects here and there along streams, um, inside small deer exclosures, um, you know, various projects where we do some restoration work. Uh, but for the most part, um, we do a lot of control burning on our preserves in the Pine Barrens. Uh, we do some experimentation with uh, reestablishment of rare plants. Okay. Um, you know, so here and there we do, we do some small scale projects. Um, we're hoping, like for example, the Sourland Mountains, uh, the forest there, some of the tracks of forest there are uh, starting to become fairly mature and they have huge trees on them. They're, the trees are growing at spectacular rates. The state has indicated that you know they're a really a good carbon sink. Okay. And um, so we're we're hoping to work with the state to promote the idea of proforestation, you know, leaving yeah. these forests mm-hmm. intact, letting them sequester carbon well into the future. And, and you know, the state, the state of New Jersey desperately needs to establish um, a system for carbon, for carbon credits so mm-hmm. that, and, you know, the state needs to start that system on state land because the state owns so much forest. And uh, one of the folks at the at the DEP was explaining to us that if, if the state can, you know, designate a lot of carbon reserves and that would, that would, uh, help, uh, deal with all the setup costs for establishing a carbon program in yeah. New Jersey. And then private landowners like conservation groups and private citizens who own land could start entering that, uh, carbon sequestration, you know, carbon retention yeah. program mm-hmm. to fight climate change. And then we could be receiving money for for preserving, for for sequestering carbon in our forests. But really, we can't do that piecemeal. The state needs to start that program, get it going on Mm -hmm. public land, and then everybody else can hop on. Yeah, and that that, you know, preserving that land and the sourlands is pretty important. Knowing the kind of loss they're going to incur just on ash. uh, All right. You know, uh, you know, they're they're having troubles, not even just from encroachment <laughs> you know it's right so there's two kinds of forest yeah. like in the sourlands is the perfect example there's the forest on historic soil that's never been agriculture mm-hmm. and it doesn't have a big ash component you know it's mostly oak okay hickory beech um you know various uh later successional species and then you have all these abandoned farmlands that from you know the late 1800s or early 1900s and they're just ash dominated forests and yeah. they're just 
they're emitting carbon, mm-hmm. they're dying wholesale yeah. and emitting carbon, they need to be restored. So that's a huge problem that we need to tackle. We need to figure out how to restore all these forests that are basically understories of invasive species with canopies of ash, and they're just turning into giant weed piles. So that's, you know, that's a big problem. So you mentioned, well, let me ask this question because I'm going to shift gears. So do you, do you get involved in management for like the easeways and properties you don't own? Do you, do you offer management that way or consulting, I guess? No, no. Okay. We, we, we're not a consulting firm. Okay. I mean, we work with other NGO partners, you know, we, we have stewardship symposia, you know, meetings, we share ideas. Okay. Um, and we'll work with any partner that we can, but we generally, we don't, we don't write plans for people. We don't act as consultants other than sharing ideas. I mean, I'm gotcha. on the phone all the time sharing ideas, <laughs> but we're not in the business of contracting as consultants. So you, you mentioned federal dollars and, and I know we want to not get too heavily in this, but, and we talked about policy, how important mm-hmm. You know, how important is the government in the role of this and how, what needs to change? How, how, you know, is it, are we in a good state right now or is there important policy missing? Has it changed over the last 10 years in New Jersey? Is, I know I'm probably opening a whole can of worms <laughs> yeah, here. A huge can of worms. Yeah. I mean, I mean, oh, you know, the government does a tremendous job saving land, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. New Jersey is, a, you know, a leader. Our Green Acres program is unbelievable. Okay. Right. We're saving land, you know, uh, you know, spending the money, preserving the land for the future. And again, it's my view that you can't preserve too much land. You yeah. can't worry about yeah. stewardship and stop saving land because if we don't save the land, we won't have anything to restore. Yeah. You know, so naturally there are a lot of patches of land that have seemingly intractable problems, right? Overabundant deer, invasive species, diseases, pests, pathogens. Well, some of those problems are virtually intractable, but if we save the land someday, you know, we might get a handle on some of those problems. The Mm -hmm. thing that one thing that I wish the state would, would fund more is the Philip Alampi lab, you know, for studying biological control. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right, right before COVID hit, I know there was going to be a release of, uh, some sort of a no oh, for pete's sakes i'm just drawing a blank right now at <laughs> old island state park um oh there was going to be a release for uh, some sort of biological control agent for japanese knotweed okay mm-hmm. now you know to me that's one of the most important species that if we could get biological control of uh that would be incredible right because yeah. japanese knotweed is is pervasive and especially pervasive in urban areas in suburban areas along rivers in riparian systems and um if we could get biological control of japanese knotweed that would open up literally thousands of acres in areas where people desperately need open space with native species with pollinators with you know healthy systems um you know and and so I, i don't even know what happened because of COVID if they were able to start that program at Bulls Island mm-hmm. State Park to see, you know, like the first test on, on, on Japanese knotweed along the Delaware River, which would be just incredible. That would be we phenomenal. We need to do that with so many different species. 
with some you of know, these we need to be and then imagine if we if we could get control of some of these invasive species then mm -hmm. that would open up a palette of acres of all types for replanting native plants plus it plus yeah. it might also curb some of the invasive insects uh mm -hmm. that we're encountering um you know, if there's less host plants for spotted lanternfly. Right. Well, then, you know, yeah. the spotted lanternfly, well, I'm not sure. I think initially it was thought that it absolutely must have Ilanthus to mm -hmm. reproduce. Yeah. I'm not sure if that is still the current thinking. But yeah. certainly, um, you know, if we could control Ilanthus, that would certainly, you know, be a big boost to helping yeah. out with mm -hmm. the spotted lanternfly problem. But I guess we won't know until we get it under control. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, and you know, you know, some of these things it'll it'll take a long time to find out, but that's one issue that we need, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, there have been people, Mark Mayer, you know, worked for the state for a long time on the hemlock problem, on yeah. the uh oh, for PTEC mile a minute and and uh, the uh, purple loose strife and they've done mm -hmm. fabulous work. But it needs to be that needs to be uh, magnified, you know, 50 fold. There yeah. need to be far more people doing that work yeah. on far more species. Yeah. When, uh, when you were talking about the biological controls, what kind of things are they using for for as a biological control for invasive species? Well, it's, it's generally insects. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay. I'm pretty sure, I, you know, like I said, I don't actually do the work, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure that there's a weevil that's been developed for uh, mile a minute vine. Mm -hmm. Wow. And um, and I can't remember which kind of an insect it was that was going to be tested on Japanese knotweed. And then there were a couple of beetles, right, that mm -hmm. were used and have really good success with purple loosestrife. Mm. So, you know, it's, you know, you have to go to the plate, the origin, the countries of origin of these plants and figure out, you know, what their natural enemies are and then test them and make sure that they don't jump species. But the work can be done. Um, it generally takes about 10 years wow. Yeah. Wow. from start to finish to come up with a biological control agent for any one species. But that 10 years is not a long time no. when you think about it. Mm -hmm. No. I mean, in the, in the, in the scheme, vast scheme of things, you I, know, 10 years and a few million bucks, and you can deal with generally uh, most, probably most of our invasive species, and that would allow us to do a, a tremendous amount of ecological re restoration someday in the future. Yeah, and I think part of it is education too. It's you know, and, and I know for as long as I can remember, there's been like an invasive species, not council for like for the state, just to try to make make plants deemed invasive um, and not available for sale, but. The nursery industry has fought it <laughs> for so yeah. long, right? You well, know, and and you can find so many landscapes that you walk by that still have burning bush and barberry and right, all these things, right. that, and you can buy them. Yeah. Well, you, and and you know, so there's two there's two levels there. You know, we had an invasive species council in the in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. and it was disbanded, yeah. yep. um, which was a shame. I was on it. Uh, Many other good people yeah. were on it. Michael Van Cleff wrote the plan, yeah. you know, and he's, you know, Michael Van Cleff is like, you know, the source. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, with, was, I don't we, remember what episode. We, yeah, we we had him yeah. on uh, yeah. a, a, about a month ago. And, and yeah. my dad was on there as well, and that's to this day he says that's one of the things he's most proud of was being on that that council. Right. And uh -huh. then we were doing really good work, and then uh, we were disbanded a few weeks after Governor Christie took office. Hmm. Um, so that was a problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, we haven't been, 
haven't been reconstituted, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but I forgot what I was going to say about that. Oh, um, there's another thing, which is, you know, emerging invasive species. There, mm-hmm. There's so many species that keep popping up new things. Yeah. And, and that's really difficult because you generally don't notice them until they get, you know, until they get, you know, out of the, until the genie escapes from yeah. the, you know, from the <laughs> land. So, yeah. That's, that's um, true. It's... So that's a big problem is, is catching new ones before they become a big problem. Um, you know, like for example, now spotted lanternfly. I mean, it's it's come completely across the state. I've seen it in East Jersey now. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. originally it was close to the Delaware River, and in a couple of years, it's come all the way to, to, uh, you know, almost the, the Raritan Bay. Yeah, but so, those emerging spe- uh, invasive species was actually a, a pretty big topic we talked about yeah. with Mike Van Cleff, and that was episode thirty-two. I just looked okay. it up. So awesome. awesome. If you haven't listened to that one, uh, go ahead and listen to that one at home. Um, but, and it's funny, you said 10 years really isn't that long of a time. It seems like a long time, but uh, you look at spotted lanternfly, it was first discovered, I think, in 2014, 2015. So it's, and while it's a uh, becoming a pretty big problem here, we've even seen some in our area of, of New right. Jersey. Um, not nearly as much as they're seeing in Pennsylvania, even uh, other parts of New Jersey, but oh, I would, yeah, it's I, not a problem when you get out outside of the mid-atlantic really yes i was at my oldest son's one of his college lacrosse games in in upper bucks county and it was in the middle of an open field and they were crawling through the grass they were literally i've heard horror stories like that it it, i had never seen anything like it it was literally you were just sitting there swatting them like gnats that's how many the kids Mm, were picking them off of there yeah it was i've never (laughs) seen anything like that so it was you know but, that was probably one of the worst case scenarios. Like, I've seen one or two here, but not nothing like that. But as as yeah. a, a proof to that point, it's um it's only been I guess six years now since it was discovered. And well, if we had started researching it, which I'm sure they have yeah. ten years ago, and they're able to come up with a solution, well, a blip on the radar if they're able to get another check. But yeah. right. if they aren't right. doing the research and they aren't getting another check, then it can become a well, really you know, the key there—the key there—is funding priorities. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's so much there's so much money put into ecological restorations. You know, I mean, you guys you guys must know, right? You grow all these that that photo behind you, Fran, in yeah. a sea of magnificent native species, and I'm sure, you know, you guys see them go get put into restorations, and then, yeah. you know, what happens 10, 15, 20 years down the line if those restorations aren't properly cared for, mm-hmm. or if they didn't get the hydrology right, and they end up a sea of Phragmites or something. You know, and I've heard you know, great success stories, and I've heard horror stories. There's right. one customer that we had that did a, a project that took probably like four to five years, and they were saying at the end they couldn't even use it as a reference because it was completely taken. It wasn't – there was no invasive species management put mm-hmm. in, so the whole right. thing had been taken over by invasives. Right, or, you know, I mean – and it might not sometimes it might not be invasives it might be that the deer you know mm-hmm. uh don't allow your plants to grow we um we've you know heard so that. you need deer fencing or or geese you know sometimes you know. if the hydrology isn't right you know some and with climate change a lot of these places that have been restored are going to change yeah and you once... know, so um i think sometimes we need to shift you know a little bit of that money that's spent you know, on 
engineering and 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 you know sort of really expensive restoration projects and get some invasive species work going and then mm -hmm. that would like i said if we could get rid of japanese knotweed on our floodplains yeah and, and that some was, of the uh... other floodplain weeds the other one in north jersey and some of the big river floodplains would be uh the yellow flower the japanese yellow flower um, you help me out the, uh the um I'm yeah, I'm drawing to, a is, is the, the... the thing that looks like marsh marigold but it's not yeah um, i know what you're talking about um, and i can't think anyway. of the, the name of it yeah <laughs> we're all i'm all i'm too old it's gonna yeah. pop into my head you know in 15 minutes yeah. but anyway um you know, if we could get those species under control, then we could be planting Virginia bluebells and all yeah. sorts of other, you know, spectacular species that you guys grow and not having them get taken yeah. over by invasives. And you make so, a great, great point, too. As things change, these places that have been restored and you have climate change and the elevation changes, that's just going to open space for more invasives to come in. Um, I mean, right. that's my, why they're there like in the first place. That, you know, weeds are going to win. Yeah. You know, that's why they call them weeds. And, um, you know, so many times, uh, we, you know, I mean, we've done it, you know, yeah. we've tried things, small projects here and there, and you know, sometimes they work, but sometimes the weeds win. Yeah. And so you, you know, you have to be pretty judicious. One of the things we've been talking with Mercer County and the Sourlands Conservancy just in the last few weeks is making very inexpensive little one acre deer fences. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping to do a bunch of those this year in the forest, maybe in a light gap, um, you know, where, where, we, where we see that an ash tree is gonna die. Maybe yeah. there's a big ash tree in the middle of a big, beautiful hardwood forest, but we know we're gonna lose that ash tree. So what if we fence the acre around it, it's gonna become a light gap and we plant it now with yeah. trees and shrubs and, and herbaceous plants that are gonna take advantage of that light gap and you know inside a deer fence so that when that light gap forms instead of being taken over by wineberry and and uh multiflora rose or whatever it might be it's we already have all the native plants already yeah. there and they're protected from the deer i think i uh, we should just be making these little noah's arcs of common species and then uh you know if you plant them with the trees and shrubs and you know, you know, some spice bush or viburnums or whatever, then the seed sources are there so that someday if we get the deer herd under control. Uh, then you can kind of connect those, those arcs, connect as you said. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I just, man, I'm having one of those days. I just complete <laughs> that thought in my head, just yeah. woo, right out. You know, it's, um, let me try to gather that thought. <laughs> Go ahead, Tom. One, Go ahead. One I of the lost things it. when you were just talking to me, it reminded us of a, a project that we were told about uh, not too long ago where they had um, a, a stream bank or a river bank, and it was full of Phragmites, and they had to strip all the Phragmites out. And um, and then they saw all the stuff that was growing. And, friend, you probably remember it was like Peltandra and – Peltandra and Sagittaria. Yeah, it, was, it, was it was just off the – 295 just north of us uh like in uh -huh. bordentown or like going up towards trenton right so like in trenton marsh or near trenton marsh. Yeah. yeah yes but so, just by removing the invasives well you gave all these natives that were in the seed bank new life yeah it was uh right mark gallagher right. at princeton hydro mm -hmm. was the one telling me about that that success mm -hmm. you know right and, he, and, and you know you find out that natural systems are incredibly more resilient than you would have ever believed mm -hmm. yeah uh, because the natives are still there hanging on um, you know, you put up a little deer fence. Uh, I put up a deer fence only about as big as uh, a half of a tennis court, you know, 
just one player's side mm. of a tennis yeah. court. I put up a deer fence in the Wachung Reservation in 1995 or six. Okay. So that's 24 years ago or so. And it's one of these forests that you would have characterized as uh, an, the empty, what Mike Van Cleft likes to call the empty forest syndrome. The deer had eaten everything mm -hmm. in sight. There was just nothing left. So, except Japanese still grass. Okay. So we put up a deer fence and it was sort of on the edge of a light gap. You know, one of the oak, big old oak trees had died. And so the deer fence kind of uh, just was partly in the light gap and partly in the shade of the forest. Okay. And it was just bare ground with Japanese still grass. And after five years, four and a half years, it was still bare ground with Japanese still grass. And I thought, oh, there's no hope. Just forget it. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what we do in this forest. It's just never going to be anything but Japanese still grass. Well, how wrong I was. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jack in the Pulpits, Maple Leaf by Burnham, started to appear inside this little fence from pieces of root, corms, whatever, that had been barely hanging on to life, you know, and they were probably putting up a tiny little sprout um, and then getting browsed off every winter. But finally, they built up enough energy and all of a sudden, the whole place filled up with native species. Wow. Nothing was ever planted in it. And now, if you go there, you can't see from one side of the half tennis court to the other. Even in the wintertime, it's nothing but native shrubs. And that's how and it's supposed trees. to look. Yeah. And Right. That's how the whole forest is supposed to look. Yeah. And we didn't do anything. We just put up a deer fence. Um, we put up the deer fence because uh, that was when the Wachung Reservation had a committee to try to convince the freeholders to establish deer management because there were three i think there were 350 deer per square mile I, my wow. numbers could be wrong it might be 250 wow. deer per square mile in the watchung reservation in the early 90s and so we put up a little deer fence as a little demonstration project yeah. you know and uh and then they started managing the herd and the, dan bernier has done an incredible job up there you know, getting it, it only took a few years to get the herd down to 20 deer per square mile, which is still okay. a lot. It's still yeah. too many. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's probably OK to have 20 deer per square mile if you are, have a good forest. Yeah. But if mm -hmm. you have an empty forest. Every yeah. little plant that pops its head up at 20 deer per square mile, it's like a lollipop in a bowling alley. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, so they they find it. So but it's taken 25 years inside the fence the forest is completely grown back and outside the fence at 20 deer per square mile the forest is growing back now they're native shrubs they're starting to get some height worm-eating warblers which are a shrub nesting ground nesting you know uh warbler um they've returned to the Wachung reservation nice. because they've kept up the deer management for you know 25 years almost 30 years mm -hmm. but that, i mean that that's the point think of the work yeah. Right. Well, yeah. it, you know, they've got it down to a science um, and and, you know, they run it the program every year. Hopefully they'll continue to do it the right way. You know, Dan Barnier isn't going to live forever. You know, yeah, nobody yeah. does. And, uh, you know, God only knows what m might happen in 20, 30, 40 more years. Right. But at least the Watchung Reservation has a chance. Now it's up to the next generation of people to, to keep it going. We were up there. Uh, I missed the field trip, but you know, folks went up there from Natural Heritage Program to a to a, a one of the 
natural heritage priority sites that had been identified on you know the old maps yeah. on one of the trap rock glades up on the watching reservation and fortunately almost all of the rare species were still there and you know they may have been gone if the watching if, if the watching reservation union county park system hadn't been managing for the last 30 years because the deer problem only got really bad in the 80s yeah yeah i mean I, I, early on in the talk you asked me you were going to ask me uh how have I seen the forest change? Yeah, you I've know, because it's 30, 30 years, and, and you spent a lot of time in those forests and, yeah. and worked so in a lot of these. I got a story these. for you. Um, back in the late 70s, when I was taking plant community courses at Rutgers with uh, Jim Quinn and okay. Dick Foreman and Ted Stiles and Stuart Pickett, who were like the, the fathers of, you know, modern plant community ecology and forest ecology in New Jersey, um, we would go on a field trip to a place called Dark Moon Farm, okay. which was up in Sussex County. It was owned by a family named Pittenger. And we would bring the Rutgers van up there with all the students and we'd get out and knock on the door and Mrs. Pittenger would say, oh, hello, you know, and she would tell her husband, oh, the, the Rutgers students are here and go ahead, go, you know, go look for your plants. And we would go back through these cornfields up onto a limestone ridge and the place was incredible. You were afraid to step into the forest. This was in the late wow. 70s. You, you, could, you, you were literally afraid to step into the forest for stepping on some rare woodland wildflower, uh, you know, every kind of uh, doll's eyes, cohosh, wow. uh, buttercup, um, you know, you name it. Every amazing ginseng, uh, dwarf ginseng, wow. um, every uh, plant imaginable, that blood root, you know, all the things yeah. that you, you you know, you would take photographs, you know, with your old Kodachrome, <laughs> Kodachrome slide film back in the 70s. You know, you just couldn't wait to go to this place. <laughs> then I went off to Wisconsin. Ten years later, I came back and I taught ecology at Rutgers. And I took the kids up there for a field trip. And I said hi to Mrs. Pittenger. She was, you know, much older. And uh, we went back in the woods and it was all gone. Wow. There was literally nothing left. You could... You, you were lucky to find one trout lily, you wow. know, or one, a couple of spring beauties. I mean, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. And in the whole area around there, it's near a beautiful place called Mud Pond with cliffs mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the beautiful uh, Quercus Muhlenbergii, the, the uh, yellow yeah. oak, mm -hmm. right? And um, the, the place was like a whisper of what wow. it had formerly been and much of it much of the adjacent land had become a nature conservancy preserve in the meantime okay, okay. and uh i just couldn't believe what had happened in 10 years because of the deer and and it just happened so fast um so you know that's the blink of an eye it's only you know it's 30 years ago uh, but i think we can restore uh, those plants are still there if you could manage the deer if you could you know, give the plants some protection. I bet you those genotypes are still there. I bet you they're still, you know, hanging in, yeah. barely visible, hard to find, but they would they would probably come back. You know, it's I, I remember my thought that I had lost earlier mm. and we were talking about restoration and, and restoration really is just like a band-aid, you know, and, yeah. and you you're bringing up some great points that we need to get ahead of it. If we can prevent some of these problems, it would be less that we would have to restore. We're mm -hmm. just kind of fixing the problems that have happened because of the deer, but we're not really fixing you know, deer management, we've, we've talked about it on so many episodes, uh, 
how important it is to to the health of the yeah. forest. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the big thing there is, you know, uh, you know, we need to have real incentive to reduce mm-hmm. the deer herd. We have to change the laws. Deer deer meat has to be a commodity so that so that there's an yeah. incentive to reduce the deer herd and to make it worth something. Yeah. That's the only way it's ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the idea that you know. When you go to a restaurant, the venison has to come from the other side of the planet, you know, yeah. from some deer yeah. farm. It's just, it's just an atrocity. Um, that has to change. It's going to be hard to change. Um, you know, probably requires both federal and state uh, legislative changes in terms of, you know, the game laws. But, but it needs to happen because we're losing so much. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, maple leaf viburnum coming back when you put up the enclosure. That was something that you saw all the time. Now you very rarely see it. It's yeah. We when I when I was a an undergraduate at Rutgers in general ecology, we did a project in Kilmer Ecological Preserve in Piscataway on the branching structure and the leaf structure and the shade and the light intensity under maple leaf viburnum shrubs. Okay. And the maple leaf viburnum shrubs were six and eight feet tall. You know, you wow. had to claw your way through them in 1978 <laughs> in Piscataway. And if you go to Kilmer Woods now, they're gone. Yeah. I think maple leaf viburnum was the first to go. Uh, they're so highly preferred by deer. Yeah. But if you put up a fence, they come back. They're still mm-hmm. there. There's little roots, and they and it's unbelievable. They come back. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's. But that's a great, you know, and and to me, that's a success story. You know, one of the things we're going to ask you, you know, we talked about all the issues with with the forest and and the land that we're trying to conserve. What are some of the success stories that you've had mm-hmm. on, let's say, on on NJCF land? Like, has there been any rare flowers that you oh you've sure spotted um, or sighted? So, um, you know, our stewardship staff. You know, uh, we have a stewardship staff of you know four or five people. Okay. Um, headed by Tim Morris and Russell Julig is our uh, Franklin Parker uh, yes. Preserve Manager, and, and he awesome. has volunteers, you know, expert botanists searching uh, for you know rare plants and doing inventories. Um, when we uh, submitted our forest stewardship plan to the Pinelands Commission and and the DEP, you know, we had done a full ecological inventory of the Parker Preserve. Oh wow! As many years. Yeah. Um, you know, I worked on the herps and the amphibians and that sort of thing, all the rare, you know, all the rare herps. Mm-hmm. Um, we documented, you know, uh, all the critical habitat for all the rare snakes and the rare rare amphibians and that type of thing through radio tracking, through, you know, nighttime surveys, that kind of thing. Russell's botany volunteers have found uh rare species of plants almost every rare plant that you would expect to find in the core of the pine barrens you know we've documented as many locations as but wow um there's a a few plants you know I, i'm sorry i don't have have the names at the tip of my tongue but there's uh you know a few plants at the parker preserve one of them someone i think right now is doing the dna work it might be endemic to burlington county new jersey oh, oh so, wow it might be a, a different species of false asphodel that occurs nowhere else except Burlington County, New Jersey. Um, then there was, uh, oh, for Pete's sakes, <clears throat> we have, uh, you know, some some other, I, I probably shouldn't even, 
probably shouldn't even mention what they are because <laughs> yeah people looking worried for about collectors we've yeah. had problems you know yeah. have you had, had problems pro have you had problems with people going in and collecting uh well we're sure that animal poaching is a problem okay mm -hmm. um it's probably not as bad as it used to be okay um but you know it's it's still a bit of a problem um i did a project i did a project you know with high school kids uh the old railroad that runs through Chatsworth, the mm -hmm. old Jersey Central Railroad. Yeah. That that's kind of a funny story in itself, right? The Jersey Central Railroad was built in the 1800s to ship all the caviar from the town of Caviar on Delaware Bay up to Perth Amboy, so okay. it could go to New York. And um, of course, that didn't last long because the people in Caviar wiped out the sturgeon, yep. and because <laughs> yeah. you know, they were filling up <laughs> railroad cars with sturgeon eggs and. And then I read the newspaper from the late 1800s in uh, in the Cumberland County uh, Historical Society office. And the people of Caviar said that uh, they had fallen unto God's disfavor. They did not know why God took their sturgeon from them, and they didn't know what they had done wrong. So they wiped out every female sturgeon in the ocean, just about, right? Wow. They're starting to come back now after 130 years. Wow. Um, and they, you know, they didn't even, they had no clue what they were doing. So anyway, that's the, that's the railroad. So anyway, in, in the 19, early 1900s, the railroad was rebuilt and all the railroad ties were thrown to one side when okay. the new railroad ties were installed. So you have all these railroad ties laying in the woods and they were all creosote soaked and the creosote didn't penetrate into the interior of the railroad ties. So there are all these, all these railroad ties everywhere and they're like big hollow logs. So, and they're loose because they're just laying on the yeah. forest floor. So everyone has known forever that if you want to go find rare snakes, you just go flip all the railroad ties. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we did a big project a couple of years ago uh, in the Franklin Parker Preserve and we got rid of all the railroad ties Okay. because the snakes don't need railroad ties. That just puts them in contact with people yeah. right yeah. the snakes can do just fine in the forest they don't need those hollow railroad ties yeah. they, have, they they can find natural places and but they like the railroad ties <laughs> so if you know the poachers just walk up and down the railroad tracks flipping railroad ties and take all the snakes away so gotcha. we, we 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 had a big high school uh, uh what do you call those things service day yeah mm -hmm. and the high school kids came and you know they got into it like we're going to get rid of all these railroad ties and that's going to really piss off all the poachers. You know? <laughs> so they thought that was great. How many snakes did they find during that? Oh, it was the middle of the winter when all oh. the snakes were in hibernation. <laughs> <laughs> that's good if timing. We it, if we did it in the summer, you know, then all the kids would have ended up in the hospital with tick and sugar bites. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so we just, uh, we did that in the winter. And then of course, when the snakes came out of hibernation, um, you know, it made it a little rough on the poachers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. yeah but that's good. That's good. <laughs> it should make it tough on them. So, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, I was just mentioning that, you know, we did this survey for our, you know, our forest stewardship plan of, you know, all the rare species we're finding. Oh, it, we did a controlled burn. This is really interesting. You'll like this. We did a controlled burn. Okay. Uh, and the New Jersey forest fire service has been, been fantastic trying to do hotter controlled burns and burning into some really wet pitch pine lowlands and things to yeah. really you know try to mimic some natural disturbance and uh russell julig and uh ryan rebozo who used to work for yeah. pinelands preservation alliance um they did some plant transects 
to study the response of the control burn. And we found Nice Kern's beak rush coming up in the wake of the controlled burn, the prescribed burn, wow. in a place that was not disturbed by people in any other way. Wow. In other words, Nice Kern's beak rush growing in the forest floor. Wow. You know, just because there was a fire. You, you know, um, and I, I don't think a lot of the public just understands how important some of these burns are. Like we know Pennsylvania sedge really doesn't produce a viable seed unless it gets burnt. Like mm -hmm. once it gets right. burnt down, it, it it comes up and it produces a good seed so it can reproduce. Without that, it kind of – you know, it can it can falter a little bit. So it's it's very right. important for a lot of these things to happen. Right, and, and you know – you know, the first year after a burn, you naturally, uh, the insect populations are depressed, you know, in that spot, but they quickly recover, Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and the food chain quickly reforms. So, you know, as long as there's heterogeneity and that there's a burned area here and an unburned area over there, you know, things quickly move back in and recover. Um, what's really interesting with our radio tracking of pine snakes is that um, the, the snakes don't really don't really change much. Um, you know, they, they're habitual in where they go. Okay. Tom, I think your brother once helped me radio track some pine snakes. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 He, he had so much fun. Yeah. He said he didn't find enough snakes, though. He's, <laughs> he's a snake fanatic. <laughs> and uh, so they, you know, they develop these patterns, and um, they go to the same place every year on the same mm. day almost. Wow. And it didn't matter. If, if you burn the area, they still went to the same places. So, I mean, it could be that, you know, in the in the year that the area was burned, well, okay, you know, maybe they didn't find as many voles to eat or whatever. But, um, the, you know, they managed. And then, you know, they just, uh, they hung out in their territories. We saw a little bit of shifting going on um, uh, in terms of some of the winter dens, perhaps because of the burning. But for the most part, they were oblivious to it. Wow. Um, what else was I going to say about them? Oh, um, we have a, an interesting story. We were radio tracking a really large male rattlesnake, and uh, right. we found it near Chatsworth one summer, right at the end of July. And we started radio tracking it, and um, as as the fall approached, it started heading east. And, okay. Um, we lost the signal on it. We, right. we, we didn't know where it went. We thought the radio died. We, you know, because okay. the radios are supposed to last a couple of years, but sometimes they die prematurely. Okay. And um, so I went up in an airplane that winter and searched every stream corridor for that radio signal within, within three or four miles of Chatsworth, and I got no signal anywhere. Okay. So I thought, well, that pretty much confirms the radio died. Yeah. Snakes nowhere. And... Um, you know, or the snake could have got preyed upon and the yeah. radio could have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. That yeah. was you know, yeah. the other possibility. So then the next year, uh, we were, you know, radio tracking other snakes and it came to the end of July. And I said, well, why don't we just go down and check, you know, where that snake was the end of July? Because who knows? Yeah. Maybe it'll be sitting in the same place, you know, and even though the radio's dead, maybe we'll find it on the same log, okay. you know, and then we can remove the radio. Yeah. Well, we went there and the radio was working. <laughs> All right. So there was the snake in the same spot, and the radio was working. So we're like, uh-oh, the radio's working. Where the heck was this snake last year? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. 
So Fred Akers uh, from Great Egg Harbor Watershed, he took it upon himself to make sure that we didn't lose the snake. Yeah. And he radio tracked it. It went eight miles to the east. Wow. Wow. Until it, until it found its winter den. And it never crossed the paved road. So wow. um, it went clear across the pygmy pines to a new hibernaculum area that we discovered for rattlesnakes. And it made that same, you know, 16 mile round trip two years in a row. Wow. Wow. So, you know, this big male lived in Ocean County in the winter and came to Burlington County in the summer <laughs> to find girls. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, so we learned a lot. Yeah. And, you know, it was amazing because we wouldn't have been able to find it with via an airplane because we couldn't fly over the bombing range. You know, there's the no. one bombing. Yeah. yeah. So, so there the only way that we were ever going to find that snake again is if it came back to the same place. Wow. And you know, we were lucky enough to hear the signal and realize that you know the radio hadn't died at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And just so and I know uh, Bob Zappalorty is publishing a paper now, you know, about that being the the farthest any anyone has ever recorded for a round trip of a rattlesnake during the course of the season and just think if if that land hadn't have been preserved you know all that would have been lost right well and you know that just goes to show you right this this think of what think of what these things need in terms of square miles yeah you know without pavement you know as soon as you put a paved highway um, that's what i worry about for example in the pine barrens we've saved all the land right look at the map for pete's sakes we've saved almost all the land right but there are creatures that cannot get across those highways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those highways, those county roads have so much traffic on them now that they might be isolating populations genetically. Not wow. birds, not insects, but, you know, reptiles and amphibians and, liz- you know, reptiles and amphibians and other things that can't, you know, can't fly yeah. or and, run fast. And when you fragment <laughs> yeah. those, those so, uh, populations genetically, that raises yeah, the chance of inbreeding. Ex- and you know, now you have lead to extinction. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, because the patches are too small. So, you know, we've, we've saved all the land. I mean, my vision for the Pine Barrens, you know, a hundred years from now is that there will be huge sections of elevated roadway. But of course Mm -hmm. that means that society would have to spend money on, you know, building elevated roadway instead of bombs. Mm -hmm. No, (laughs) that'll ever happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We'll, we'll save that one for the uh, government's role in restoration. Cause I'm sure, I'm sure over 30 years, you've seen it go back and forth depending on uh, whoever's in office. Um, you know, how the policies change just if you have someone right. who's a little more environmentally, environmentally friendly uh, or not, you know. And well, and, you know, I mean, we're, we're making, you know, uh, I'm on the Endangered Species Committee that people do great work, you know, at uh, on the Endangered Species Committee to staff the Endangered Species Program. They're so dedicated, you know, and they've created these uh, amphibian tunnels, you know, in yeah. certain places so that bog turtles and 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 rare amphibians, rare salamanders, can start getting across roads again and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, we got, you know, we've got to do a lot of that. And yeah, sometimes we can do it when you know highways get upgraded, but sometimes you just need money. You know, you just yeah. you need to just do it. Yeah. So and I'm sure those are the things that get overlooked pretty quickly when when money gets involved. Yep. Right. So right. well, and, you know, there's this great new thing called. Uh, uh, change uh, <laughs> connecting habitats across New Jersey, C-H-A-N-J. Oh, oh OK. Yeah. 
the Endangered Species Program has worked mm-hmm. on. You can find it on the, uh, you know, on the web, C-H-A-N-J. We'll have to include that. You know, a yeah. mapping tool, mapping tool to show you where all these connections need to be made for wildlife corridors and that kind of thing. But, you know, the same thing, uh, the, um, there's an interesting group of people at the Parker Preserve. Um, we call them the mushroom people. It's, it's the <laughs> mycological enthusiasts, right? They go yeah. out and they do field trips every few weeks and they just scour the place for all the different species of fungi. They've been doing it now for about 10 years. Wow. And they're still amassing new species every year. Wow. You know, roughly 50 to 75 species a year that they haven't wow. seen before. That's amazing up to about a thousand species now for the Franklin Parker Preserve. Many of them have never been seen in New Jersey before this survey was done. Wow. A lot of them are from the South, which you would expect. Mm-hmm. One of the first things to show the impact of climate change are all these fungi that are coming mm-hmm. from the South because yeah. they have no trouble getting here. You know, so it's easy for, you know, the, but the point is easy for fungi to move around. It's not so easy for, you know, snakes to move around. Yeah. No, yeah. you know, and or, a lot more rare plants. I mean, rare plants, yeah. you know, my goodness. Um, there's a rare plant, you know, at the High Point Monument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's an Arctic species with climate change. You know, the habitat for that plant in New Jersey is going to go up into the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's going to it's not going to be able to survive. Um, and, you know, other, you know, weeds, like I said before, weeds will win. Weeds go yeah. everywhere, but rare plants, they, they're no. not just going to move around. And, and so, it's not what they do. And we've learned so many of those rare plants have symbiotic relationships with other things in that area. They can only exist in that area right. because of the mm-hmm. relationships they have with other plants or other, other things in the soil. So it's, you know, once that changes, they can't exist anymore. So it's, 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 it's rare for a reason. It's unique to that area because that area right. is unique. And when you change it, there you go. You know, yeah, it's... there's the uh, the agaro skipper. I think I'm pronouncing it right. The agaro skipper. It's a butterfly. It uh, it uh, its caterpillar needs uh, pine barrens reed grass. Hmm. Yeah. Now I don't know if you guys grow Calamovilpha pine barrens reed grass. We no. do not know. But it's you know it's it's not uncommon. I mean you find it yeah. here and there all around the pine barrens. Mm-hmm. You know it's like you can pretty much go out any day and find Calamovilpha. But you don't find vast populations of it because there aren't enough wildfires. Mm-hmm. And if you have a wildfire, if you burn the entire population, you burn all the caterpillars. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you need you need heterogeneity. You need populations of Calamovilpha, pine barrens, reed grass that are extensive, and then you need for them to burn. But you need not for all of them to burn. Yeah. Yeah. You know, think of how complicated that is because everything we do is so homogeneous. You know treat this patch, treat that patch. And you know, that everything's way more complicated than that. And it's interesting, you know, we've talked about it all the time when we've had Sam Drogi on and so many other people that, you know, with this science, we're just finding how much we don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, all this new science, we're realizing what have we lost or what have we missed already? We're just, we're just collecting this now, but, but there's, you know, in such a short period of time and decades, but Mm -hmm. you know, this has been here for, for eons, you know, and you're just, you're just figuring out you know, we just know a small portion, a oh, very yeah. small portion yeah, of it. We know, we, you know, we, it's embarrassing how little we know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So but, for, for, for NJCF, um, do you do public outreach? Like, is there education or outreach to the public? Um, or are you more behind the scenes that way? Or do you leave that to other organizations that you work with? 
Um, we don't have an education department. Okay. You know, now and then all the staff people get asked to do a talk here or there. Gotcha. You know, and we'll do that, you know, on a, on a limited basis yeah. if we have time. And, you know, if it's not too far away, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, certainly, you know, we, we have some small events, you know, at our headquarters or little events at the, at, at the various preserves. We're trying to step that up, especially in the urban areas with our Camden project, you know, at Gateway Park. Yeah. We have a couple of staff people in Camden now working mm -hmm. on, on the issues surrounding all the greenways in Camden and the, the environmental justice issues and, you know, trying to get, um, you know, the, the, the community there plugged into the environment. So, um, you know, we're, we, we're nibbling at it, yeah. but, you know, that's, a, that's not a primary role. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. some organizations have large education departments mm -hmm. and spend a lot of time on teacher workshops or, you know, having kids come in. That's, you know, we do a little bit of that. And and you work with a lot of great organizations that, that do that. So mm -hmm. together you're covering all the bases because they have the means for education, but maybe not the means for conservation. Um, yeah. And then, of course, by collaborating with them, you know, we get to discuss the topics so that hopefully they're teaching, you know, they're they're getting insights and teaching about interesting things that we're learning about from each other. Yeah. Now, before just because I keep meaning to ask and, and I keep forgetting your background, you have a snake that's looming just <laughs> just outside yeah. your head. Do you, what what type of snake is that? OK, so that's that's a common species in the Pine Barrens. That's a rough green snake. OK. And. Um, there's a good story behind this snake. Um, one of the one of the parcels uh, that we recently acquired about oh eighteen hundred acres uh, to expand the Franklin Parker Preserve. Okay. We acquired in the last few years, um, and then another I think another nine hundred acres near uh, Brennan Burn State Forest yeah. was owned by a particular landowner who had owned it for oh gosh since probably the 1950s or 1960s a okay. landowner from from uh the family was from northern new jersey okay and uh we had started working with that family in the um in the 90s okay. no actually yeah early 90s what happened is um we um right off the side of route 72 and in, in near Chatsworth okay. uh, was a property that the Diamond Shamrock Mining Corporation had donated to us. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be called, I believe it was called Governor's Hill, if you look at old topographic maps. Okay. It was uh, Sand and Gravel Hill. And it was mined away. I don't know when it was mined away, yeah. you know, probably in the 60s or something. Yeah. And uh, Burlington County asked us to acquire it because they wanted to start a park system. This was in the 1970s. Okay. And so we did. And then the Pinelands Act was passed and then Burlington County never did start a park system at that time. They have one now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful park system. They, but Burlington County does really, you know, we're we're in Burlington County. We've actually had Burlington County is, parks on. Yeah, I was going to say that episode one's episode four. four. Yeah. Yeah. Episode four. Yeah, yeah. so, but I mean, the, the, the creation of their park system kind of got delayed mm -hmm. in when, when the Pylons Act was passed. Um, or at least in that part of the county, mm -hmm. because all of a sudden there was, you know, all the Pylons Act rules and there was less mm -hmm. of a need, you know, to preserve land. Yeah. They felt. So, uh, you know, anyway, so we, we ended up stuck with this sand mine. 
and uh, over the during the 1980s, while I was in Wisconsin, right, and not working for New Jersey Conservation Foundation, that's when all of a sudden, you know, the whole idea of monster trucks and off-road vehicles and all sorts of stuff started to really blossom. Yeah. So in the late like 1990, when I started working for NJCF, I went to that sand mine property that we owned and it was unbelievable. You know, I had a meeting, you know, maybe at Whitesburg or at the Pylons Commission. And I said, okay, it's Friday afternoon. I'll go check on them. You know, let me go see what that property is all about. Yeah. So I had a little tiny Honda and I drove in there and uh, I could barely get in there with my Honda because the road was all messed up. Okay. And when I got there, there was a pit in the bottom of where the gravel hill had been. It was a sand pit with water in the bottom. And there was a truck on fire with two giant chains uh, attached to it and two monster trucks pulling the truck that was on fire in a tug of war. Wow. To see see who was going to pull the other monster truck into the water. Wow. That was what was going on. And then then there were people firing weapons into the sand and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And I mean, I mean, I was just blown away. Yeah. And, um, and I, what I didn't do was I didn't walk up to all those people and say, excuse me, we're the landowner and you're not allowed to be here. I, I chose not to do that. So, um, so then what happened is we started inquiring and working with the neighbor who was the landowner uh, of this large tract of land and working with off-road vehicle folks who were responsible and we created the new jersey off-road vehicle park in chatsworth oh wow okay right and that was a special permit from the pinelands commission for 10 years to run an off-road vehicle park and to restore the land while the park was being run the off-road vehicle park was a separate nonprofit, and then after 10 years hopefully they would save all their money from their memberships yeah and then they would go and contract to restore another gravel pit somewhere in the Pine Barrens. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Nice. And they got lots of money from the National Recreational Trails Act money and they bought trail groomers and they put it in the irrigation system and they had equipment containers and they ran this park and they were trying to run it beautifully. And the renegades, what I would estimate to be like 96 or 97% of the off-road vehicle community are kind of renegades. Yeah. They would destroy everything regularly. Wow. Because they didn't want to pay membership and they didn't want to have rules and they didn't want to be told, oh, you can't ride over here. You have to go to the yeah. legal place. Right. So the, unfortunately, the whole thing failed because um, mm. they couldn't save any money. Their insurance costs skyrocketed. Yeah. Everything kept getting destroyed. And then when it came to the end of the 10 year uh, temporary permission from the Pinelands Commission, we had to shut it down. And since then, we've restored it. Okay. And, um, we have a project right now to improve the pine snake habitat on the property. And okay. um, that was the end of the off-road vehicle park. Wow. And that's adjacent to this landowner that we started working with at the same time in 1990. And then we finally finished negotiations with them. Uh, and that's where the green snake comes in. So, so we were about a million dollars short in the acquisition funds. Okay. And, um, and so uh, a major donor was interested in helping us, you know, preserve land. And we took a tour in the Pine Barrens 
and I found one of these guys crossing the trail. And it sat with us at lunchtime and climbed around a pine tree, <laughs> and, you know, just sat with us while we ate our lunch. And this family was so enamored with this little green snake. Um, one of the comments they made to us was, well, you know, yeah, we'll give you a million dollars for this acquisition. Just make sure that you take care of these green snakes. Wow. Yeah, wow. Right. Wow. So when we had the dedication, um, a couple of days before the dedication, one of these green snakes crossed my path. So I picked it up and put it in my jacket pocket. Mm -hmm. So, cause I wanted to pull it out at the demonstration yeah. at the dedication event, you know, to surprise the family. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately somebody took ill and we had to postpone the dedication from September until November. Oh, so now it's time for these guys to go into hibernation. So I, I made a little a condominium for for the green snake at my house, <laughs> right? And it was a female, so she thought she went to Florida for the winter because yeah, she stayed yeah. warm. And I kept feeding her crickets, and she got fatter and fatter and yeah. put on weight. And then at the dedication in November, I was able to pull it out of my pocket and show it to the donors and say, "Here's the green snake, you know, that we're still taking. We're going to take good care of it." <laughs> and of course, we released it in the springtime back to where it belonged. Awesome. And it was really funny because at the dedication, you know, she was, she was, uh, she had grown, you know, like 20% in body weight. Yeah. And we made a big joke out of it. How, when she came out of, when all the males came out of hibernation in the spring, they were going to take one look at her and she was going to be like the queen of the hop. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's we, we, we did talk about, we had Ryan Rebozo on and we just talked about off-road vehicles and mm -hmm. how much damage, you know, and it's, you know, just remember like I, you did the right thing not approaching them i at one time at princeton nurses we had three thousand acres and there was one farm in the back there was a, a prime fishing location and i was there after hours and there was a group of men there and i knew they weren't employees and i was gonna go up to them to let them know that they were on private property and they weren't welcome and as i was pulling up one of them <laughs> reached in you know his waistline and pulled out a handgun and just put it on the roof of the, the oh, truck no. just so i could see that he had it <laughs> yeah. and i was like ah you know what they can they can fish <laughs> i'll let them they win this one you know but just oh, be my. safe so yeah. uh one of the things we always like to ask towards the end is just how you found your way into this industry. What made you mm -hmm. want to do this for a living or, or, or go to college for this? Did you even know when you went to college that this is what you wanted to do? Um, no, when I started college, I thought I wanted to be a mathematician or a physics major, and okay. I was doing that. And I worked in the summer at the particle accelerator at Rutgers, and it became very boring. <laughs> and at the same time, my brother had returned home from the Peace Corps okay. and took me bird watching. And I started watching birds, and uh, I went to my, my advisor in the physics department, and I said, I think I'm going to switch my major, and he got all mad at me. <laughs> and, but I did. I switched majors and was fortunate enough to be assigned to Ted Stiles. Okay. Um, whom you may have hopefully met in your earlier years yeah. before he passed away. So unfortunately, you know, at such a very young age in 2007. But anyway, he was my mentor. He was Michael Van Cleef's mentor. So he's, you know, there's so many of his sort of kids running around, yeah. you know, New Jersey still. And uh, he was incredible. Wow. Right. So that was probably where it all started was when I was lucky enough to meet Ted Stiles and Stuart Pickett, who took me to the Pine Barrens for the first time in 1978, I believe. Wow. And um, and that was it. As soon as I saw the Pine Barrens, I was hooked. 
that was it. That's awesome. And um, then I went to Wisconsin. I studied in the Pine Barrens and uh, trying to think. Came back in 1988 and uh, started working for NJCF in 1989. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, a couple of things there, right? My brother took me bird watching. I met Ted Stiles and Stuart Pickett. I was very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's pretty that's much That's the it. rest of history. That's, yeah. that's yeah. how I got into this deal, right? Uh, yeah. So before we ask you the last most important question, how can the if the 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 public that's listening uh, to the podcast right now, if they want to get involved or help, is there a way they can make a donation or or get involved at all with the NJCF with 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 organizations that maybe monitor or do mm-hmm. things like that? Uh, yeah, so sure. I mean, um, you know, we have ability to utilize volunteers, okay, interns. Um, you know, you can go to our website and uh, and it's, which which is you know just Google New Jersey Conservation Foundation. Go to our website and and you can find out about you know volunteer opportunities and opportunities for interns. If you're, if you're interested, you just send us an email. Awesome. It's uh, njconservation.org. Yeah. There you yeah, go. You just send us an email and uh, and somebody will get back to you. Awesome. You know, it depends on where you live, what you might like to do. Um, certainly, you know, making donations is always incredibly welcome. <laughs> awesome. Um, and yeah, you have properties all throughout New Jersey, North, mm-hmm. South and Central. Yeah, so all throughout yeah. New Jersey, we have, you know, uh, like I said, we have a preserve in most counties. Okay. Um, some are small, some are big. Mm-hmm. And if you go on, uh, on your guy's you know, website, it has a a list of all those those properties as well um and all the projects that you guys are associated with and, right. and uh, there, there are even properties that aren't even on there because yeah. there are too many yeah to, to put them all on the map you know wow. um so you know if you if you really want to do stuff you know we know where you live we can think of something yeah. that might be <laughs> yeah. you know when COVID is over there's no end to the work that people can help us help us out within the office too wonderful so. wonderful fantastic yeah. right, tom did you have anything before yeah, i was going to say question? a couple other things i see just on your on your guys website is you typically have the the new jersey land conservation rally um you didn't have it uh this past year right so right so you know the land rally is usually a big project of ours with you know many partners mm-hmm. of course uh putting that together yeah. and uh obviously we missed it it had to be canceled last year i think Right, that was. I've, I, I don't know if it was. It I was saying canceled remember. for last year. It's canceled for this year. But it, on the website, it says what the, no, the specifications lost, you know, are this, and all that. This, this, oh. this thing that we're going through, I, it's hard <laughs> to remember what happened anymore. Yeah. But you know, we did our we did our major sort of our yearly gala. We did that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, on the in, you know we did a we did that on the internet. Yep, I can't yep, remember okay. what happened yeah. to the land rally last year. I. Think it was canceled. I yeah. think it was canceled. Then uh, another thing I see you guys do is um, there's a well you did it in 2020 for was coffee and conservation, which is a pretty cool looking program where you had um, people could register for uh, different programs. One of them, the first one, was with you, which was owl calling. Yeah, which was well, we have you know we have a series of walks yeah. at our usually at our main office, which is in 
the Morris County Park, Bamboo Brook. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, you know, we, we live in one of their uh, old, uh, turn it, you know, mm-hmm. 100 plus year old buildings over there. And wow. it's a beautiful uh, grounds. It was the, the, the woman who landscaped it was one of the first female landscape architects well, and it was her family's property. Oh, wow. And it's a, just a beautiful place. Um, of course, I haven't been there <laughs> in almost a year. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, you know, we have little events. There's, you know, all sorts of stuff on the website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, so one other question before we get to our final question, and that's, are there other organizations like this across the country and other areas of the country that are doing something similar? Um, well, is this pretty there, unique? We there do, are we do hundreds. Have- there are hundreds, if not thousands, of land trusts mm-hmm. okay. that own conservation easements and own land. Um, there aren't as many organizations like ours that do both uh, policy work. Um, you know, like we're involved in a lot of lawsuits. We're involved in a lot of uh, legislation, mm-hmm. you know, a- advocating for various kind of land use principles, green acres, bond issues, permanent you know, funding for the acquisition of open space, that kind of thing. So, you know, we we kind of do both things and it sometimes is very difficult because, mm-hmm. you know, on one hand, we want to get money from the DEP and on the yeah. other hand, sometimes we sue the DEP. So, <laughs> yeah. so we, you know, we, we ride a very peculiar rail. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But everybody's kind of used to that. They know that. So Surprisingly enough, you know, when, when you look at our listens per state, you know that it's New Jersey, PA, New York, and then it goes California. Mm-hmm. You know, it's our our listening base is really all over the country. So yeah. we we kind of focus here because this is what we know. But yeah. um, you know, maybe we can look into some other ones that we mm-hmm. can throw out there as well across the country, or maybe some of our listeners can throw some organizations at us. Oh, yeah. that maybe oh, there there are to. land trusts everywhere. Um, if 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 you Google the Land Trust Alliance, you'll see that there are land mm-hmm. trusts in every state in the country. Okay. Right. You know that are preserving land, um, and and in in many different unique ways. Just awesome. All just all sorts of different ways. Whatever fits. You know, you yeah. every place has different tools, different ways of preserving land. Yeah. All right. So it's it's the important question, the big question yep. that we ask everyone. So and and we've already. We are. We've already negotiated concessions to this question before we went on the air. <laughs> so, <laughs> the the last question is always, "What's your favorite plant?" But uh, you also want to you want to do shrub tree. Yeah. So okay. I'll give you. I'm going to give you my favorite tree okay. is Nissus sylvatica black gum. That's a great. Mm-hmm. I, I do love my, that tree. My favorite uh, small tree is Magnolia virginiana. Nice. Very nice. My favorite shrub is spice bush. Okay. And my favorite herbaceous plant is Indian cucumber root. I don't know that one. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I don't know that mediola. one. Okay. Um, and they all have one thing in common. And that is? That they have bird-dispersed fruits. Oh, very nice. Right? So uh, black gum has little blackish purpley uh, berries. Mm-hmm. And yep. magnolia has those incredible, you know, uh, fruit Food oh, yeah. clusters that yeah. are filled with fat, lipids actually, really important for bird migration. Spice bush is one of the most mm-hmm. nutritious fruits in the forest. Uh, Lindera has a has a fruit that's like like forty or fifty percent fat. Wow! Wow! And Indian cucumber root is a mimic. It has 
It has tiny little dark berries and behind them, half of the leaves turn red so that the black hmm. berries can be seen yeah. from above with a red background, which is so oh, crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm All looking right. at the picture right now. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm going to look really it up that up on the screen or something. That would be yeah. incredible. Yeah. Because yeah. only the inner half of the leaves turn red just to highlight the fruit. Wow, that's awesome. But the fruits don't have any nutrition. They're fooling the birds that are up in the black gum tree. <laughs> <laughs> so, One... so naive, naive birds that have never eaten them before they're eating nutritious stuff and then they see these little black things with a red background and they come down to eat them and they get fooled <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I, I i own about an acre and a quarter and it's a it's an interesting property because it it butts up to the new jersey turnpike so there's an easement on the back end there's two pipelines that run through it but the rest of it other than where the house is was pretty much undisturbed so it's all black gum and there's a a colony of canada mayflower and and cinnamon fern and blueberry right. and it's mm -hmm. just to me, it was – and there's Beach and Magnolia, Virginiana, and I just love that it was a lot of these great native plants right there, kind of you know, little patches of it undisturbed with the pipeline and the turnpike basically mm -hmm. over, right. overlooking right. it. So, Well, but, some of these patches of soil that's never been farmed are still have tremendous little plant communities on them. Yeah. You yeah. I, and, 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 and you can look on the old maps from the 1880s or from even 1930 and see – what was forest you know 150 or 100 years ago and it was it's likely that it was never plowed anything that was yeah. forest in late 1800s or early 1900s if you look on old maps and aerial photographs mm -hmm. um likely they were never they might have been grazed but they wouldn't have been plowed well i i guarantee and, you where i live would not you would not be allowed to build houses there today because everyone yeah. i know that grew up in this area they're like oh that was that was all swampland <laughs> <laughs> right right so you know there's skunk cabbage in my backyard things like that so it's it, it's just small patches but it's great to see so how we always end up the show after the final question is we give everyone a final thought so this is a a, a space where you get the mic you can wrap it up you can mention something that you want to promote or just something that we didn't touch on you you have the floor to say whatever you want hmm. well i would just say that what we do in the next 50 years, 75 years, right, in terms of conservation of natural resources around the world is what's going to make or break our future, yeah. right? We have yeah. the, kid, the, the, the kids, today's kids, right? It's basically, you know, my generation has really screwed stuff up. Right. We're starting to turn it around now. We start we're starting to understand mm. the problems. Yeah. We have the science. We know what needs to be done. Now if some of the old people can just get out of the way, right? And uh and, and let the kids take over and save this world, then the work we're gonna do that you know, the work we're doing now and that the work these kids are gonna do in the next fifty to seventy five years that's gonna make all the difference. Yeah. Wonderful. So. That's what I like. I like to think positive. Awesome. Tom, you want to go or you want me to go? Yeah, I can go. All it's right. uh, Another thing I found on, on your guys' website was um, you actually have a, a Get Involved tab on the very top. And uh, there's one that says Take Action under that tab. And it's really it's telling people to call your local legislators and your New Jersey legislators and, and show your voice for conservation. Um, that's something we've asked for before from our yeah. listeners is – that's uh it never hurts to and 
I'll even say personally, I get emails weekly, and it's oh, this bill is going into the the House Assembly or the State Assembly. This one's going into to this committee, and right. And um, there's some stuff that I like. There's some stuff I don't like. And when it's something that really moves me, well, I'll write to our local politicians or whoever's sponsoring the bill and saying, "Hey, yeah. this is something that I support, or this is something I I don't agree with." and and express your opinion. It doesn't hurt to do it. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, it actually really helps. So exactly. No, it's very important. It actually it actually makes yeah. a difference. Every yeah. every little bit makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, there there are lots of legislators that actually do pay attention mm-hmm. to what the public is saying. Yeah. And if you don't say anything, then they'll never know. They don't know. And that kind of leads into mine. Mine's short and sweet. You know, a lot of the things and topics that we talk about on the podcast are fixing problems on the back end Mm -hmm. but in order to make a difference we have to change things on the front end and that takes everyone that that we all have to to make changes or get involved somehow so like tom said uh, make a phone call or send an email or or write a letter Um, we have to really change things because you know eventually that that dam's going to have so many leaks we're not going to be able (laughs) to fix it so you know it it might take a new dam (laughs) so or a new way of of thinking it so Uh so that's mine yeah so that is it thank you for joining us today we hope you enjoy enjoyed listening to dr emil devito from the new jersey conservation foundation for more information about njcf visit www.njconservation.org uh thank you everyone for listening to native plants healthy planet uh, I would love to give a big thank you to Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our brand new theme music for these episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, after the last buzz, we got a, a slew of new followers on YouTube. We're only about 19 away from being able to get that custom URL. So oh, yeah. keep yeah. keep clicking wow. subscribe. Uh, we now have a question in uh, comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189 and ask a question. If we pick your question or comment, we will play it and answer it on a future episode of The Buzz, just like uh, we got a call last week while we were actually recording The Buzz. So we'll play that on the next one. And uh, – and last but not least, don't forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. We picked up another 2025 yeah, uh, yeah. member, so uh, that's great. Keep it going. Keep spreading the word. Yeah. So one thing with the YouTube channel is I've actually been taking these uh, these conversations. We're putting them up there as a video, yeah. and then I'm even taking kind of the highlights of it. So uh, I'm sure, like the snake story, I'm going to cut that out of this episode, and I'm going to it'll be that like five ten minute story will be split out so you can just watch that if you don't want to listen to us ramble on the whole thing (laughs) you you can just listen to the highlights and it'll take 15 20 minutes instead of uh an hour and a half yeah or you know you can you can you can do both yeah exactly why why not do it all so so um and you can submit original music unless did we pick a winner no we actually yeah we got a winner it's a last minute so we got to take that out yeah we we definitely have that now so we have uh we have new theme music for Rooted Discussion, so you missed your window. Unless we start a new segment, we're done with theme music until next year. Yes, that so, is true. But uh, let's see. Where are we? You guys should have a little uh, <laughs> intermission with a quiz, like clicking yeah, claps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea. I so, like that idea. So um, you can listen to this podcast, Native Plants Healthy Planet, directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, really wherever you consume your podcasts. 
Um, unless you're Russ Minari, then you listen on the website. Ah, he Along said, with no, a he, changed, he, oh, he's... he posted today and said he has switched to Podbean. <laughs> oh, so. that's great. Yeah. That's, he's moving <laughs> up. He's progress. So you can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. When you're going to listen, please subscribe. Please leave a review. Those really go a long Those are way very important. Um, with our rankings and, and help promote this message to even more people. Yes. yes. So, That's pretty good. You know, Russ is a good friend of mine. It's hard to teach an old guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, I think I made fun of him enough. Tom, <laughs> Tom picks on him every episode. So he finally he mentioned that he, he joined Podbean yeah. and it's He's been listening on there. Yeah. So. so with that, I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Emil, thank you so much for, for spending time with us today. And everyone well, my pleasure. Was, that was great fun. Thanks. Uh, anytime. And everyone will see you again in about a month when we do our next uh, Rooted Discussions. Um, and Tom and I will see you next week with the buzz. Yeah. So until next time, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.